It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, is it a sin if I celebrate Halloween? Coming up in this episode, to be a Christian is to have high moral standards. So what does that mean when it comes to Halloween? For some of us, this holiday has a flashing do not enter sign. For others, it's seen as a harmless way to have family fun. Harmful or harmless? Which is it? Should I stay or should I go? Now, here's Rick, Jonathan, and Julie. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 20 years. And Julie, a longtime CQ contributor, is also with us. Jonathan, what is our theme scripture for today's episode? 1 Corinthians 8, 9. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Well, today we will be asking, is it a sin if I celebrate Halloween? Many countries celebrate Halloween or similar versions, including the United States, Canada, Ireland, and several Latin American countries. It is very popular here in the United States. So candy, costumes, parties, and fun. The Halloween season, with all of its excitement and trappings, is upon us. On top of the fun and the sugar rush, this time of year particularly specializes in seeking, horif- uh, in seeking to be horrified as another form of entertainment. The party-like atmosphere is generally sprinkled with murder, mayhem, zombies, and apocalyptic events, all in the name of thrills. Because of this anything-goes approach, Halloween has become an absolute favorite holiday. The question is, should we as Christians celebrate this day, which has its origin firmly rooted in paganism and its practices firmly rooted in over-the-top behavior? Is it a sin for Christians to celebrate or have anything to do with Halloween? In this Is It a Sin series, we've been addressing lifestyle questions from our listeners who message us from the Christian Questions app or email us at inspiration at christianquestions.com. We've covered questions including cross-dressing, sexuality, blood transfusions, tattoos, and more. And to see all of our series episodes, go to christianquestions.com slash podcasts, scroll to the bottom, or just search sin at the website or app. Okay. Is it a sin if I celebrate Halloween? Because Halloween is firmly rooted in paganism. We need to take a few minutes at first to do a quick review of what drives pagan beliefs. So we're going to go to an article uh, called Understanding Paganism from Cheops International. Jonathan, let's get started with a basic overview. As it was in ancient time, and so is today, paganism is based on the patterns of agricultural cycles of the earth. It is also based on the belief that everything is alive, the earth and all of her inhabitants, animals, plants, oceans, even the air is connected and dependent on one another. This belief extends to the planets, stars, and universe. Everyone and everything are conjoined. The divine is recognized in all and manifests itself in the circle of life. So you have all of this connectivity and all of this divinity and all of these different things. So that's a basic, basic foundation of what paganism is. So now let's go to the when and the why of the original celebrations that Halloween was derived from. I'm going to go to Wikipedia and talk about Samhain. Julie, what do we have? Samhain's a Gaelic festival marking the end of the harvest season and beginning of winter or darker half of the year. It's held on November 1st, but with celebrations beginning on the evening of October 31st, since the Celtic day began and ended at sunset. This is about halfway between the autumn equinox and winter solstice, and it's one of four Gaelic seasons. Now, historically, it was widely observed throughout Ireland, Scotland, and the Isle of Man. And I'm just going to add each of these four festivals throughout the four times of year are recreated in modern paganism with its own gods and goddesses that are worshipped specifically at that time of year. Okay, so we've got times of year with all of these different things. So Samhain is definitely a season-based ritualistic celebration. 
That's important for us to understand as its, as its basis. Pagan belief was very season-centered. So again, let's go back to Kiops International, the article Understanding Paganism. Jonathan, a little bit more about the seasonal aspect of paganism and its beliefs. The pagan calendar, also known as the Wheel of the Year, marks the Earth's four seasons, tracks the sun's continual journey through the sky, and the waxing and waning cycles of the moon. It is a symbol of the circle of life, representing the continual birth, death, and renewal cycle as conveyed by the changing seasons. So when you see that, what you look at is you say, okay, it's based on this cyclical life, death, rebirth, earth. And you think there's a lot of sense to that. And remember, when you're going back into ancient civilizations, there's not a lot of reference outside of what you see in front of you. So looking at the cycle of life is a very natural thing to do. What we look at with this is we say, okay, there's that natural aspect to it, but then we take tremendous, tremendous issue when you start adding all of these spiritualistic kinds of things as we will unfold as we go. So a key to this description in the way Samhain is described, and remember, Samhain is at the time of year that Halloween has picked up on. So this, this description is the way Samhain is described as this time of transition, going from the lighter half to the darker half of the year. This expands on the sense of uncertainty that the coming of nightfall or periods of darker times can have on, on, on people. Throughout this episode, we're going to be playing excerpts of a YouTube video called Top 10 Dark Origins of Halloween, just to get an idea of what's involved. This was the Celtic festival that was celebrated in Ireland, Scotland, and the Isle of Man. It was said that at this time, the connection between the other world and our world thins, so it makes it easier for spirits and the souls of the dead to come into our world. So they would celebrate the dead and make offerings and sacrifices for them. Another part of this tradition included having the Celtic priest wear dead animal heads and skins and go around making predictions about the future. Most of the stuff they did to celebrate this holiday was done so that the spirits wouldn't get mad at them. Now, in some pagan Wiccan traditions, the god of Samhain is said to be the Horned One, the Stag of Great Antlers, also called the God of the Wild Hunt. And so you can see that connection to what these Celtic priests would wear. Sometimes this god, lower G, lowercase g, is called Lord of Death. And incidentally, the goddess of Samhain is an image of an old crone called the Old One or the Earth Mother. And this time of year would bring uncertainty because of the early darkness and cold winter coming soon. But it also meant a celebration because it was a time of harvest. Community festivals would combine these feelings of fear and excitement. I think human nature finds a certain thrill in fear. Yeah, they do. Now, look, not all of human nature. I don't know. Jonathan, do you find a thrill in fear? (laughs) <laughs> no. <laughs> Julie, do you find a thrill in fear? I do not like to be scared, no. N- neither do I. So, <laughs> yes, human nature, but there's a lot of us that's like, uh-uh, I'm not going down that road. But that's what we're looking at. And again, you're looking at something ancient, and the fear of the unknown was dramatic in those times, because did you have enough food for the winter? Did Were you going to be warm enough? And all of these things, especially in the, in the Celtic environment. So you, you have a lot to consider as to why they did what they did and how they developed their beliefs. So we're going to look at some primary sound points, and, and obviously they're all according to pagan beliefs. So let's go through these. Julie, let, let's start with you. Well, according to pagan beliefs, the connection between our world and the spirit world is said to be thinnest at this time of year. And supposedly, that makes it easier passage for spirits and the souls of the dead to come to our world. That mystical veil between the spirit world and the natural world is opened. Out of superstition, they celebrate the dead with offerings and sacrifices. And the pagans believe and try to keep the spirits appeased. And this is the time not only to communicate with those dead ancestors, but also a time to see into the future, both of which are forbidden in Scripture. Yeah, so you have this, and like we said, you start out with the the simplicity of the cycles of nature, and then you add all of these other things on top. So you've got this incredible mixture. Pagans were deeply, and are, deeply tuned into the earth, 
and its cycle and the changing of seasons. As we view those same seasons as Christians, we see those things not as divine, because remember in paganism you see everything is divine. We don't see these things as divine, but we see them as created according to God's divine plan. There's a massive difference between those two things. So first, let's do a look at a couple of scriptures here. First, God created an ecosystem in which all of nature works on a cyclical basis. This is the creation of God. Jonathan, let's go to Psalm 104, verses 19 and 20. He made the moon for the seasons. The sun knows the place of its setting. You appoint darkness, and it becomes night, in which all the beasts of the forest prowl about. Well, God set up the seasons as his self-perpetuating design. It didn't happen by chance. And the seasons themselves are not divine. Right. You have the seasons because that's the way the earth renews itself. Brilliant creation. Not brilliant chance. Brilliant creation. Brilliant system. But it's nature given by God. So we've got this ecosystem that, that God puts in place. So that is the first point. Second point. Humanity has been put in place to be an integral part of this system. Jonathan, let's look at Psalms and then a scripture in Ecclesiastes. Psalm 104.23, man goes forth to his work and to his labor until evening. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 and 2, there is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. So when you see those scriptures and you put them together, man goes to work, he, he, he works during the day, he's supposed to work hard, and things have their times. And so the roots of paganism that are based in nature are based in God's creation. This is important. So we've got God's cr created ecosystem, man's place in that ecosystem, and then third, here's the big point. We're to clearly differentiate between the creator and that which is created Again, Jonathan, let's go to Psalm 104, this time verse 24. O Lord, how many are your works? In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. Well, the truth is, this is a God-created system. We are to give glory to God instead of, quote, Mother Earth. Many people, and even on TV shows today, give credit and thanks, quote, to the universe instead of to God. Satan's strategy is to do anything he can to take honor away from God. God created all that's being worshipped. Paganism is idolatry because the created is worshipped and not the creator. And as Christians, we never want to join forces with idolatry. We recently did a two-part series on paganism called Can Christianity and Paganism Work Together? It was episodes 1235 and 1236, and they're going to provide an important base to our topic today. And of course, one of the iconic symbols of Halloween is the witch. And no matter how Hollywood depicts them or how they're portrayed in fairy tales, any kind of witchcraft is forbidden in scriptures. And uh, episode 1236 compares those core values of Wicca, white witchcraft, supposedly, with biblical Christian principles. So there is a major, major, major difference. And, and that's, uh, look, folks, that's a fundamental thing. If we're asking the question, well, what about Halloween? Is it a sin for Christians to be involved? Let's understand, let's understand history and where God stands with that history. And it's a very clear-cut picture. So, Jonathan, as we put this introduction in order, labeling sin and living above it, what do we have? Paganism is based on the divinity of the earth, it being the driver of its seasons. On the contrary, Christianity is based on God having created the earth and its seasons. This means we have no common foundation to build upon. The Samhain origin of Halloween is far from a godly beginning. Key point. There is no common foundation to build upon because they take nature and they add all this spirituality to it and they take nature out of its meant-to-be context. So we see thus far that the roots of Halloween grew out of a very earth-based belief system with a heavy dose of spirit world conjecture. With a firm basis in nature, how does Samhain integrate the pagan's belief about the spirit world? Well, a key factor here is understanding that every ancient culture had respect and often fear of things beyond earth. 
So many belief systems saw the sun, moon, stars, and beyond as, as gods, and so many belief systems were focused on appeasing those gods. Sometimes such appeasement went as far as human sacrifices. So this celebration of Samhain was built around their misunderstood spirit world. Today, we don't really know too much about ancient Samhain. There's some basic concepts that get passed around the internet, but the history is kind of hard to trace, and there is a lot of conflicting information. Uh, so let's go back to our top 10 dark origins of Halloween and hear a little bit more about what is said about it. Sacrifices. So back in the day, the Celts considered November 1st as the day of death. Why? Well, by that time, leaves were falling and it was getting darker earlier on and it was getting colder. So they believed that their sun god was losing strength and that Sawin, the lord of death, was taking over. So in order to appease Sawin, druid priests would lead worship ceremonies. They figured this would appease him and keep the spirits from harming them. Well, they would sacrifice things and people to appease the evil spirits from harming them. Yuck. Yeah, you know, that's not a good practice. Folks, uh, you know, don't go there. Don't go there. Don't go there. Sacrificing and appeasing of the gods. That's what we're looking at here. And this is something we need to really clearly understand as we look at the origins of Halloween in this Celtic uh, uh ceremony and time of year called Samhain. So, so, Julie, let's go back to Wikipedia to get a little bit more background here. Okay, so we're talking about Samhain. It says this, the festival was not recorded in detail until the early modern era. It was when cattle were brought down from the summer pastures and livestock were slaughtered. Special bonfires were lit, deemed to have protective and cleansing powers, and there were rituals involving them. Samhain was a liminal or threshold festival when the boundary between this world and the other world thinned, meaning spirits or fairies could come more easily into our world. They were appeased with offerings of food and drink to ensure the people and their livestock survived the winter. Now, Rick and Jonathan, oddly enough, liminal is one of my favorite words. <laughs> it means you are an in-between state. You're neither fully here nor there. And humans can be very vulnerable in periods of change or indecision. We talked a lot about this on a great episode, number 942, called Can Souls Cross Over on Halloween? And we explored how to keep alert during a liminal period in our lives. These fairies coming through the other side, these aren't Walt Disney's Tinkerbell. Folklore has them as spirits of the dead or fallen angels, demons with magical powers out to trick and hurt humans. And when you think about, when you look at pictures of fairies, they're, they're little and they're petite and they're angry. I mean, they are angry and devious and dark. And again, we, when, you, when you take the cartoon aspect, it's such a pretty little thing. But the origin of this idea was was very very evil. It the fairies were evil, like a mosquito. You want to just want to just smack and get out of your life. So let's understand that's what was at the beginning. So you know, let's let's take a look uh, at a little bit of a scriptural perspective on this idea of sacrificing and so forth. Well, the practice of offering sacrifices to God was common from the very beginning of civilization. Genesis four two through four. Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regarded for, regard for Abel and for his offering. Okay, so you can see that there was an, the importance of animal sacrifice right at the very beginning of humanity. It was there, it was present. It was also present at the restarting of human civilization after the flood. Jonathan, let's go to Genesis chapter 8, verses 18 and 20. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Well, think about it. Noah and his family are miraculously saved. These sacrifices were not about appeasing anger. They were offered to acknowledge God as sovereign, to show humanity's desire to follow his will and his ways. So what you have is this incredible thankfulness, this gratitude, 
And that's what sacrifices in Scripture are supposed to be for. And when you look at the appeasing of a dark, evil God versus the gratitude, it's a whole different basis to understand things. So here's what we have. We have sacrifices on both sides of this issue. So the very basic seeds of what was done in the pagan Celtic societies can be, in fact, tracked back to the history that's recorded in the Bible. However, 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 there is a vast difference between those seeds, scriptural, and the path that the majority of humanity took, which led them away from God, away from that gratitude, away from all that was good and was healthy in God's sight. And we know this by looking at Exodus chapter 34, verses 12 to 17. And this is God showing his chosen people how to act and what to do when they enter into this promised land. Let's go, Jonathan, and we'll go uh, 12 to 14 to start. Watch yourselves that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst. But rather, you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall not worship any other god. Well, what is an ashram? Well, the Canaanites worshipped the mother goddess Asherah. The Bible describes wooden posts or pillars near the altar of worship called ashram, plural, used to symbolize her. Unfortunately, idolatry was common among the ancient Israelites, and these objects were used throughout their history. So you have the sense of God saying, cut those things down, remove them. He's telling them very specifically, don't get mixed up. Let's go on with verse 15. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods. So, pausing there again, God is saying, okay, here's why you don't just put them aside and say, oh, people used to do that and point to it. Here's why he says get rid of it, because the fact that they exist means it's a temptation for you to bring it back into your lives, making a covenant with their gods and play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods. So he's building up to a point, and let's continue with the verse. And someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice, and you might take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. You shall make for yourself no molten gods. This is a situation that can quickly lead from bad to worse. Allowing objects of idolatry around them led to getting friendly, so to speak, with the neighbors. So their guard was down. They become contaminated with idolatry because it becomes normalized around them. And there's a big lesson for us today about allowing our allowing outside influences to become no big deal. Well, wait a minute. We are to maintain soul reverence for the one true God, Jehovah. Yeah, and, and you have to put all of these things in order. The, the references to pagan beliefs and practices in these scriptures are glaring. God's plan is a linear path from past sin to future life. He consciously brings us ever forward towards a destination in the future. Paganism has no such plan. It is ambiguously cyclical as things, people, and all of the universe return to the same point again and again based on the seasons and the Earth's rotation. Yeah, and you know, that's a, that's a really important point. God's plan goes from point A to point B. Paganism and their beliefs, it turns it around in a circle, and you never go anywhere. You're always repeating, always repeating. God created seasons to be repetitive as time moved forward, and they miss the time moving forward and the godliness of the true divine, which is the creator and that which he created. There's a big difference. Now, Israel was unequivocally told not to merely avoid such idolatrous practices, but to destroy them from their land and communities. Let me repeat that. To destroy them, to make it so you can't tell what was there. You take it out because it has no place, because it's idolatrous, and what are the first commandments? It's all about honoring God only and having no other gods before him and not making graven images. So we look at the law, we see that there's this dramatic difference between godliness and paganism. 
let's fast forward to Jesus. Uh, we're going to drop in on an account in Mark 12. And in this account, he's talking with the scribes and the Pharisees, and, and, and there's a question put to him. So Jesus is asked, which commandment was greatest? And what he does is he takes this concept of sacrifices offered to God and elevates it to an entirely different level of showing dedication and loyalty to God. So he answers the question in the scripture we're about to read, and then the scribe responds to his answer, kind of like saying, okay, so this is what you're saying. And Jesus verifies this scribe's answer. This is really, really profound. So Jonathan, let's go through Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. Let's stop after 31. One of the scribes asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So Jesus' answer is profound. The, the, the scribe asks, which commandment is greatest? And Jesus teaches, in very few words, a major lesson of what following Christ is all about and how to put things in perspective, God first and treating your neighbor as you treat yourself. And now comes the response from the scribe. Let's start with verses 32 to, uh, to 34. The scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Well, Rick and Julie, we know that the law was a bridge to worship and honor God, right? It's not to appease God, but it's because we love him. The burnt offerings and sacrifices pictured Jesus himself. Sacrifices were the way to God until Jesus came. So you have this picture, but here, think about what the scribe says. He repeats back Jesus' answer, and then he makes an observation. His observation is, all of this is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. What he's saying is, the heart is much more meaningful than the actual sacrifice. And Jesus' response is that the scripture says, when he saw he answered intelligently, he said, you're not far from the kingdom. Because he, he saw this individual putting it together, saying it's what comes from your heart that counts, and Jesus would be the final sacrifice that would be needed. And then it all comes down to the heart. So the idea of sacrifices was a temporary way to get to God until Jesus. And now it comes down to sacrificing our hearts and our will for the, for the sake of the will of God. So this shows us sacrifices are not the ultimate way to God. Ultimately, it's belief in Jesus, his sacrifice, and that puts our approachability to God in order. It's not about appeasing an angry God. It is about gratitude to the creator of all things, who is above all things, and wanting to serve him and him alone. Not the things he created, but him and him alone. So Jonathan, labeling sin and living above it in this discussion of Samhain and what it means, what do we have? The deeper we go into understanding Samhain, the less we see any similarities with Christian faith. From multiple gods to multiple sacrifices to appease what we know to be non-existent spirits of departed ones, this whole celebration is diametrically opposite to our faith. Unfolding this history helps us to know where to draw needed lines in our decisions. So you need to be careful and clear to understand what it is that happened in ancient history. This is important. That's why we spend all of this time on this, so we can get to the core of the matter coming up in just a, a couple of moments here. We want to put it in perspective, and you need to understand to be able to have perspective that can be a godly perspective. So, Samhain was about darkness, insecurity, and celebration all at once. Halloween, while lighter, fits that same description. So we see origins of darkness, fear, and harvest time. But what about Halloween and trick-or-treat? Aha, trick-or-treat. In our present time, trick-or-treating has played one of the leading roles when it comes to 
Halloween celebrations. Between parties at home and being on the streets in full costume, the idea of trick-or-treating and collecting candy rules our day. So as we uncover this tradition from ancient days, we're going to begin to get to the core question of what we're supposed to do now as Christians. For our listeners in other countries, trick-or-treating means kids dress up and they go door-to-door collecting candy from each house. And Halloween is big business in the United States. According to the National Retail Federation's annual survey conducted by Prosper Insights and Analytics, consumer spending on Halloween-related items is expected to reach an all-time high in this year, 2022, of $10.6 billion, billion with a B, billion, $10.6 billion. Let's hear about some of the modern rituals of this event, Top 10 Dark Origins of Halloween. The praying for the dead. This is an old school tradition that may have inspired trick or treating. So back in the day, people would go around door to door asking for money or food. In return, they said that they would pray for the dead. But here's the thing. If you denied them, then they would get upset and they would trash your front lawn or your garden, etc. So you kind of were obligated to give them treats or else you'd get the trick. In our fourth spot, we have the Halloween costumes. Now, how did the whole dressing up for Halloween thing even start? Well, during Samhain, when people thought that spirits were crossing over into their world, there were a lot of people that weren't okay with this. So they thought if they dressed up, as one that they would be left alone. That's just one theory as to why costumes became associated with Halloween. And I've got some other stats for you. This year, costume spending alone is projected to hit a record $3.6 billion, including $700 million on pet costumes, with one in five people dressing up their pets. We have a very popular video in our CQ Kids series called, Is Halloween a Christian Holiday? For this and over 100 Bible-related videos for children, go to christianquestions.com slash YouTube. All right, so now we're looking at the trick-or-treating, and we're looking at the origins, and you look at the origins, and you look at today and say, okay, differences, similarities, and so forth. So celebrations um, that were the basis for today's holiday activities. You touched on that with that with that clip from the 10 Dark Origins of Halloween. But let's go a little bit further to get some background and understanding on this. Julie, let's go back to Wikipedia for uh, just a little bit more explanation. Okay. So back to Samhain, the souls of the dead kin were also thought to revisit their homes seeking hospitality, and a place was set at the table for them during a meal. In the early modern era, Amateur actors went door-to-door in costume reciting verses in exchange for food. And the costumes may have been a way of imitating and disguising oneself from these spirits or fairies. Divination, and that's a ritual used in fortune-telling, was also a big part of the festival, and it often involved nuts and apples. Ah, nuts and apples. I like nuts and apples. Those are nice. <laughs> those are nice. That's <laughs> about like that's about it, though, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. So, look, we, we we've got a lot of history that we've talked about, and we've got where we are today. The, the pagan origins of Halloween were founded in a very real concern about life, and there were real concerns, and they had a lot of superstition and so forth. But you fast forward many centuries, uh, you got to ask the question: Now that we know all of that, what are we supposed to do with all of this here and now in our present social order? For most of us, the history we just discussed doesn't seem to have a bearing on the actual basis for our present day Halloween celebrations. So let's put the two next to each other. Let's look at the past. And let's look at the present with the same basic pieces and just kind of give us summation. Julie, why don't you start? Let's go to the past. Back then, this was the end of the harvest and a Thanksgiving time for it. Today, for many of us, harvest time is all the time. We can experience harvest every day at the grocery store because of modern logistics, growing and moving food all over the world. Back then, the coming cold winter loomed ahead, and this was a big problem. Today, cold winters means heating bills, but also means winter activities. Just having a heated house can be the difference between life and death. Back then, there was an apprehension over the coming dark days. Not only would food not be growing, but this would mean spirits come sooner in the day and were closer than other times of year. Darkness breeds fear. Today, 
days being darker simply means lights go on sooner. <laughs> Back then, the uncertainty of life, death, and the hereafter, the season of fall, is all about the transition from life to death with leaves falling, plants dying, animals hibernating. And for those who live in areas with four seasons, fall feels very different from spring. Today, many do have questions about life and death, but Halloween is not a focal point for these questions. Mediums and fortune tellers do business year round. And incidentally, no matter what time of year, don't do it. <laughs> Back then, the communication with departed ones and the avoidance of appeasement of evil spirits was of foremost importance. Today, for those who do foolishly seek to communicate with the dead, they do so to their convenience, and we believe to their absolute detriment. Back then, these real concerns were expressed through ritual and celebration of multiple gods. Today, it's not about ritual celebrations. It's about fun, sweets, friends, and the thrilling of being spooked. They had life and death concerns. We have luxury and entertainment. Usually, the scarier, the better. So you see a dramatic similarity and difference between what actually happened and how society has translated what happened. So in other words, Samhain doesn't directly translate into Halloween. Rather, some community traditions that we have uh, have their ancient roots in something with an entirely different meaning. Fast forward many centuries, what are we supposed to do with all this here in our society? For most of us, the history we just discussed has no bearing on the actual basis of our present-day Halloween celebrations. So is it a sin if I celebrate Halloween? Now, I don't have children, so this question isn't as personal for me now, but I did some limited trick-or-treating in my day. I wasn't allowed to be anything sexy or anything scary. So the middle ground was my mom made me a frog costume, so I went as a frog for several years. I, I did love it. Um, as an adult, I don't like Halloween. I can eat candy any day. I don't know what we're celebrating. It sounds, it's death, it's skeletons, witches, mischief. And for every innocent frog costume, there's a ton of satanic movies of torture and gore. So if Halloween itself isn't evil, to me it seems evil adjacent, and just my opinion, unnecessary. <laughs> but again, I don't have kids. So what about your kids, Jonathan? Did your family celebrate Halloween? Well, yeah, when our son was little, we did allow him to dress up. My mom was an artist and she made him beautiful costumes. His favorite one was an eagle that she hand painted feathers on. We would take him to just a few houses uh, of relatives and friends. And then we would head up to good friends of ours from Bible study who had a harvest campfire every year. They would serve chili and baked potatoes and everyone contributed to the big candy bowl. The kids had fun being together and the adults enjoyed fellowship. They were nice memories. So to you, it means family fun and not a celebration of fear and death. Correct. So what about you, Rick? Yeah, there's no fear and death. No fear and death. No fear and death. And and we were very, very similar. We, we actually, our kids didn't go trick-or-treating. We would go to my mom's house and we'd have a pumpkin party. And they, they dressed up and we played games and we just had fun. It was about having fun. There was no darkness there that wasn't allowed. It was the fun. And, and look, as a family, I'll, I'll admit that we, we would pick a theme and dress up as a family. You know, we'd go with the Wizard of Oz theme or the Peter Pan theme or something. And it was just fun. The idea was to just take the time and be together. And yes, we did eat candy. So, you know, when we, <laughs> when we look at, at these things, we, we need to understand that there are segments of society that look at the darkness and they thrive on it. And there are some segments of society that look at it and say, kids, fun, happiness, and they thrive on it. So we've got these two things going on and some people try to mix the two. So it's, it's confusing. It's very confusing. So as Christians, we need some scriptural basis. So let's use the scriptural principles that the Apostle Paul laid out in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Here he addressed the very real and current issue of his time. It was the eating of meat that had previously been offered to idols. This was an issue that rocked the Christian world in the early days. This was a major issue. This and circumcision, these were big things in early Christianity. So 
the idea of eating meat that had previously been offered to idols. You're in these Gentile cities, and they have these Gentile gods and temples, and they would offer meat to the idol. And you know what? Never once did an idol actually accept the offering. Just want to say that, okay? <laughs> the, the meat was offered. The idol didn't take it, so they say, okay, didn't want it, wasn't hungry, and they put it up for sale in the market. But it was a little older, so it would be at a discount. And there would be places near the temple where you could go eat discounted meat. So... You know, you look at this and say, well, maybe we could go have, have you know, Jonathan, I, you know, you and I get together, we're Christians, and let's go have a, let's go have a hamburger, okay, shall we? Hey, <laughs> do you want to go to this place? Because they're half price. And, and maybe, Jonathan, you look at it, and what's your opinion of that? Um, I love half price, but, Rick, I don't know, it was offered to an idol, so I'm a little nervous about this. Okay, so you, and I'm like, oh, come on, it doesn't mean anything. And you're like, no, I don't, it, it bothers me. Look, it doesn't mean anything. It bothers me. What do you do? What do you do with that? Well, the Apostle Paul exactly deals with this issue. So in 1 Corinthians 8, as he begins, he sets the stage for the most important aspect of the issue. The most important aspect of this whole issue comes out in the very first verse. So let's go, Jonathan, 1 Corinthians 8. Let's do verses 1 and 2 to begin. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Okay. Knowledge makes us arrogant, but love, selfless love, benevolent love, the kind of love that God has for us, the kind of love that Jesus gave his life with for us, that builds one another up. So the Apostle Paul is going to talk about a touchy, touchy issue. And he starts by saying, understand, I'm going to teach you, I'm going to show you knowledge, but I want you to have love first and foremost in your mind. Here's how he sets it up. So he's got that basis. Next, he establishes the foundational facts. And these foundational facts are simple. There's only one God, and there's only one Lord Jesus. So Jonathan, let's go 1 Corinthians 8, uh, verses 4 to 6. Therefore, concerning the eating of these sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, and from whom all things and we exist from him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, from whom all things and we exist through him. So you have this clarity. The Apostle Paul says, okay, Love's the most important thing. The next foundation piece that goes exactly with that, one God and one Lord. We worship them only. Our existence is because of God, and our salvation is because of Jesus. There is nothing else. These are our foundational beliefs. So this is simple, okay? Idols don't matter. That's what he's saying. There is no idol. It just just doesn't matter. And now he says, as certain as we are about this. So now there's a caveat. As certain as we are, it's not easily understood on an emotional level as a freeing truth by some of our own. So he's saying, now you just got to watch out because what I told you is true, but some of us are not able to wrap their arms around it. Let's look at verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 8. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat foods as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So here's the core issue. Sometimes our personal history colors our present-day ability to perceive what the Apostle Paul is laying out as, this is simple, this is true, but it may be colored because of our history. The Apostle Paul knew this and wanted to protect those who didn't see things as clearly as he did. In other words, you're more important to me than a silly piece of meat. We don't want them devastated, our brother, thinking that they've dishonored God. And this is important. We don't want to be hurting someone because their conscience is very sensitive along a specific line, even if we're saying, look, it doesn't matter. The Apostle Paul told me it doesn't matter. But Jonathan, if you say to me, Rick, it, I, I get that, but it matters to me. It hurts me. I used to worship that idol. I cannot bring myself to even get close to that meat now that I honor and worship God only. So you, gotta, you, you see how important this is. So now, 
we're, we're, we're putting this all together. Paul again states an important fact, and, and this is very, very clearly uh, a reiteration of what, Julie, you just said. Jonathan, verse 8. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. So basically, what you eat doesn't bring you, you closer or farther away from God. And again, it's a matter of conscience. Now, conscience. Here's the next point. Here's the, the core call to action. We had the core point. Now we've got the core call to action. We should actively protect each other's conscience. Jonathan, 1 Corinthians 8, verses 9 and 10. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? So you have this situation and you're, and you're looking at it and saying you can actually hurt somebody because their conscience is not tuned, doesn't have the same background and experience as you do. And so, Jonathan, if I'm with you, I will, according to the Apostle Paul, I must say, you know what, Jonathan, we're not going there. I get it. Let's go someplace else. And you know what? We'll pay full price for our hamburgers because what matters to me is you. So when I am in your presence and we are fellowshipping together, and if you live in the same town as I do and all of that— I want to be really careful because you are the most important thing. This is important as we put this all together. Paul warns us of the devastation we can cause by not caring for our brother's conscience. And again, 1 Corinthians 8, let's go to verses 11 through 12. For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Paul is saying, you contaminated your brother and he stumbled. You have sinned against him and he may never recover. Okay, let's pause here. So while there are some similarities, Samhain is a different place and a different time and for different reasons. Halloween, especially in America, is mainly about entertainment and corporate profits. How can we apply Paul's principle to what we as Christians should be doing so that we don't sin? You know, and that, that's an important question, and we want to guard each other's consciences. That's the first point here. And actually, in the next segment, we're going to get into applying this. But we need to understand that the principle the Apostle is saying is those things are not real, but you have to be extraordinarily careful about those around you. Now, we've been talking about conscience. We've been talking about hurting somebody's conscience. That's not to say that, Jonathan, if you and I, you just have a difference of opinion, that, that's a whole different thing than your conscience. Sure. Okay? It's your opinion versus my opinion. It might be your preference versus my preference. It might be your priority versus my priority. All of those things matter, but not like conscience. When it comes to conscience, it's you, Jonathan, I keep using you as an example. It's you saying to me, I can't do that. I can't watch you go in there. It, it hurts me. It actually hurts me. I can't. It, it, it creates an image I can't get out of my head. That's conscience. That's not just opinion, preference, or priority. So we need to be understanding that we, if we are hurting that the depth of our brother, we, we've got we've to change. With all those other things, we've got to talk. We've got to communicate. We've got to fellowship. So we're going to get into the avoiding sinning further in the next segment. But right now, Jonathan Paul's conclusion is that my brother is more important than my freedom based in the facts. Uh, and that is in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 8. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. So what the Apostle Paul is saying about preferences, just because we prefer not to do something doesn't mean others shouldn't. When it comes to conscience, we need to be careful not to stumble our brother. Yeah, and, and again, it works both ways. We have to be very aware of the brotherhood. So, Jonathan, labeling sin and living above it, what do we have here? As Christians, the question of participating in some events of Halloween can only be answered with broad consideration. How do I truly see the things I am considering? Do they have any attachment to pagan rituals, or are they benign current-day ways to have fun? How do my brothers and sisters with whom I associate see these same things? Do they agree? Do they simply say it's not something they would do? Do they say it's not a good idea 
Are they troubled? And do they believe I am violating Scripture? See, those are the big questions. Go ahead, Julie. So uh, do we have pumpkin-flavored meat offered to idols <laughs> with, when it comes to Halloween? Is that, That's the question. You're applying it directly to what Brother, what brother Paul was saying. Yeah, well, Brother Paul is saying the idol doesn't exist. The things attached to the idol are, are, are worthless. That's what he's saying. So when we look at the Halloween, there is a very strong similarity in the application. The principle is the same. The idols don't exist. And when you, Jonathan, your son, did their, the happy little trick-or-treating, there were no idols. There, there's fun. There's a controlled environment of fun. Julie, when you were a child and you trick-or-treated, a controlled environment of fun. We are staying far away from the darkness. And the minute you go close to the darkness, that's a sin. Un unequivocally in anybody's book, that's a sin. So we want to be careful to understand how this whole issue works. So these questions of conscience are where we can prove faithful to that which is most important. We need to stop, consider, and act with godliness. With the matter of our brother's conscience in place, how should we continually regulate our own conscience? It always seems to come down to looking in the mirror and assessing what we ourselves are on the most basic level motivated by. Do we just want to belong? Or do we see whatever activities we're considering as clearly harmless? How much of my motivation has a spirit of self-fulfillment in it compared, compared to a spirit of simple and honest-to-goodness godliness? How much am I focusing on one or the other? I have to ask myself that question. And one final look at another Halloween tradition. It's the pumpkin carved to look like a face, also called the weirdly named jack-o'-lantern. So here is another theory as to how jack-o'-lanterns and pumpkins became associated with Halloween. First off, turnips were used back then before pumpkins. They would hollow out the turnip and carve them into scary faces. This was done in order to scare off any spirits. Then they would light them with a candle or a piece of smoldering coal. The lanterns were then placed in the windows or doorways of their home, hoping that the face they carved was scary enough to scare off the evil spirits and welcome their ancestors inside. So here, you know, you've got the jack-o'-lantern thing, and you know, the bottom line, Halloween began as a way to cope. Now, this is going back to Samhain, with the dark and the unknown, and in our day has transformed into fun. However, let's not stop there. Much of this fun translates into seeking recklessness, thrills, and dark excitement. And I would add a lot of it is blatantly satanic and evil. So, okay, so what do we do? What do we do and how do we handle this? And, um, you know, so mirror time. Let's look in the mirror. Let's list, list several suggestions for us to look at ourselves and say, how am I thinking when it comes to this particular time of year and these celebrations and the role that I choose to play? Jonathan, let's get started. Define what we see as what it is. First John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So when you look at Halloween as a Christian parent or as a Christian individual, are you looking at the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, or are you seeing something different? Call it what it is. Be honest with yourself because that's how we honor God. Julie, what's next? Beware the subtlety of sin. Sin doesn't have to be blatant to be dangerous. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen to 15 says, No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Well, see right there, Satan dresses up. <laughs> He's an angel of light for the purpose of deception. And this reminds me of Isaiah 5.20 in the New Living Translation. It says, What sorrow for those who say that evil is good and good is evil and dark is light and light is dark and bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. So you, so you don't want to confuse those things. And none of us do. And, and yes, Satan does disguise himself so that he can be deceptive. We need to beware of the subtlety of 
of sin. Sin is subtle, and it, once it gets you, it's like Velcro. It just grabs onto you, and it's not mm. going to let go. So you have to beware the subtlety of sin. Jonathan, what's next? Carefully choose the image to which we conform. 1 Peter 1.14 As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Okay, you had desires before you came to Christ. Do not keep those if they are not exactly, precisely in line with spirituality and godliness and righteousness and justice and integrity and all of those things. Be careful to the image which you will conform to. And, you know, if you decide that, yes, I want to participate in some Halloween things, also think about what do I look like I'm conforming to by the way I participate. See, these are important questions. Is it just on that happy happy side, or is it something very, very, very different? Next point. Julie, what's the next point? Be sure of the source of whatever it is we are being we are willing to conform to. First John five, one, five to eight. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So be sure of the source of whatever it is we're willing to conform to. Am I conforming because there is a darkness and I'm attracted to that? Or am I looking at this and saying, hey, you know what, they're, they're going to be good. You know, my, my niece is a, is a fourth grade teacher. She teaches in, a, in an environment where it's, it's not safe for the kids to go trick-or-treating. So what the teachers do at the school is on Halloween night, they do a trunk or treat. And they, get, they all go to the school, they bring their cars, they open their, their trunks of their cars, and they put candy in them so the kids can have a safe, happy, uplifting place to go. See, I look at that and say, that's cool. That's good. That's uplifting. That's giving these, these children who live in neighborhoods where there are gunshots a place to go and just be kids. Be careful. Be sure of the source that you're, you're conforming to. What's the next point, Jonathan? Recognize that we have already been delivered and we need to live a delivered life. Colossians 1, 12 through 14. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Think about the idea of being delivered from darkness. Do you want to go back to that which you were delivered from? No. Be sure that if you decide that this is something that you see as positive and fun, you make it to be all about children and light and happiness and don't allow the darkness in. Be clear because we have been delivered. And that, folks, that is a big, big deal. Julie, what's next? Well, continuing with that thought, to be delivered is to have the privilege of holiness. We are to seek holiness. First Peter 1, 15 to 16 says, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And I think back to what we talked about, the Israelites who so easily became idolatrous by adopting the ways of the Canaanites, we can also get seduced by what the world finds attractive and what it deems as normal. And in my personal opinion, any holiday where the main mascots are devils, witches, and ghosts should put us on high alert. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Be on high alert, but I still stand by the idea that if you're dealing with children and you put an environment together that is happy, that is light, and that is family-oriented, good. That's good. But make sure. Make sure your kids, you know, it's important that, that they know why. Why are we doing this, not that? Well, I'll tell you why. Because this is what we look, look at, this is what we honor, and those things we stay away from. So, folks, look, this comes down to the clarity of your own mind based on understanding history, understanding scriptural principle, and then understanding what about me? Where do I stand and why do I stand there? Am I doing anything that would be a, 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 a problem with my brother's conscience? Maybe not their preference, but their conscience. If I am, I got to be careful. Jonathan, let's wrap this up, labeling sin and living above it. As a Christian, Halloween is always a cautionary tale. 
Engaging in some activities of this holiday can, in and of themselves, be harmless. Yet the effect our engagement may have on others could be a different story. Remember, the fallen human mind will always find ways to go from bad to worse, while the enlightened spiritual mind will always find ways to rise above the fray. What will I choose? It comes down to what do I know, what do I believe, and what principles I will stand for. Folks, the idea of Halloween carries a lot of weight in many, many societies, ours included. What do I do with that weight? Do I find a way to find light? Do I fall prey to darkness because it's convenient and maybe a little bit thrilling? If so, beware. Beware, because then we are being drawn by something that is entirely ungodly and inappropriate. Stand firmly for light and truth, period. Think about it. Folks, we love hearing from our listeners. We welcome your feedback and questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Coming up in our next episode, how do I let go and let God? Talk to you next week. Mm -hmm.